morning. Uh, we'll be reading from Matthew 18, 1, 14. Matthew 18, 1 through 14. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And he called a child to himself and set him set before him and said, Truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever receives one child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it is better for him to uh, have a heavy millstone hung around his neck than be drowned in the deep of the sea. Woe to the world, because it's, if it stumbles, for it's inevitable that stumbling blocks come. But woe to the man through whom the stumbling block comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than having two hands and two feet to be cast in the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out for, uh, and throw it from you. For it is better for you to enter life with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into the fiery hell. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I say to you that their angels in heaven continuously behold the face of my Father who is in heaven. For the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. What do you think? If any man has a hundred sheep and one of them gone stray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go and search for the one that is straying? And if it turns out that he finds one, I truly say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine which have not gone astray. Thus it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that uh, one of these little ones should perish. Writing for Christianity Today in 2019, <clears throat> Ryan Berge, the uh, instructor of political science with Eastern Illinois University, reports on a study that he had conducted regarding church attendance. But it wasn't just about the rise or fall of church attendance, but rather he correlated church attendance in America with levels of household income. Tracing church attendance for the past five days, five days, <laughs> five decades, <laughs> most everyone knows that there has been a decline, <clears throat> a precipitous decline across the board. All denominations and branches of Christianity have suffered a decline in attendance. From about 70% who attended a church, synagogue, or mosque, that's the metric that he used in his analysis, about 70% in 1970, 70% of the American population attended a church, synagogue, or mosque in 1970 to now, it's under 50%. But he went further in his analysis. He measured church attendance relative to income, family income. And he divided household income of America, American families into four groups. <clears throat> and he found that the greatest decrease in attendance was in the lowest income group. This was his concern, and I quote, Many of the poorest Americans are abandoning church in mass. By stepping away from church communities, the people who are most 
financially strapped also end up losing out on social networks and social capital, which can make their economic situation and outlook even worse. Now, he didn't speculate on the reasons for this decline in attendance by the poor, and there's probably a myriad of reasons, but it's almost that Jesus knew. <clears throat> it's almost that Jesus knew that this would be the case. And in our passage today, he actually addresses this. He says that the church must be very intentional to welcome and embrace the lowly and the needy. The church is to be a caring community that cares for all. So I've entitled our passage today in Matthew 18, A Caring Community. Now, just by way of context, as we continue in Matthew, Jesus is now in his earthly ministry focused on training the disciples for ministry in his coming absence. He had told them he will be put to death and rise from death, which they did not understand, and had told them that he will, that he will build his new community, the church. I will build my church, this new community. And in our passage today, he is giving instructions for that new community about how people are to relate to one another and what the values of that new community must be. And so today, in Matthew 18, 1 through 14, we're going to look at a caring community. In the subsequent verses of Matthew 18, 1 through, uh, 18 uh, 15 through 20, we're going to see that the, this new community, the church, is to be a restoring community. And then from 1821 to the remainder of the chapter, we see that this new community is to be a forgiving community, caring community, restoring community, and a forgiving community. But today, we look at a caring community. And our passage begins <clears throat> with the disciples asking Jesus a question. Excuse me. Verse 1, <clears throat> at that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now, why might the disciples be discussing among themselves who might be the greatest among them in the kingdom? Well, it could be because of Peter's apparent role as the spokesman and so they're wondering, oh, is Peter going to be in charge? You know, is, is he the guy? You know, or it could be, um, uh, or maybe they misunderstood Jesus to say that, 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 that he was going to build his new community on Peter when Jesus, what Jesus had said, or he's gonna, he was going to build it on Peter and their confession. Or even though Jesus had instructed Peter, James, and John not to say anything about the transfiguration experience, the other disciples could be looking on them with envy because they knew they had had some kind of special experience with Jesus. 
Or they simply could be saying to Jesus, you said you're going to die. So who's going to be in charge when you're gone, when you're not here? Who's going to be in charge? So for whatever reason, they were having this discussion about who would be greatest in the kingdom. And this reflects one of the most pervasive and ubiquitous values of the world. It's everywhere. That it is this. Greatness is status, power, recognition, fame, authority. Greatness is the desire to be seen and lauded as the best, superior to others, as among the elite. This is true in any and every field. Academics, sciences, medicine, athletics, politics, and yes, even in Christianity and the church. Verse 2, and he called a child to himself and set him before them. Jesus proceeds to answer their question in the form of a visible parable. He calls a young child, and this would be a child, not an infant, but not yet a teenager, so somewhere in that mid-range, but a young child. And he is saying by bringing this child, and what he's going to say, he says, this child in some way represents the values of the kingdom, values to which Jesus attaches great importance. Verse 3, and he said, truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. <clears throat> They'd ask about greatness, and now Jesus is talking about entrance. Well, Jesus uses this child to illustrate first entrance into the kingdom of heaven. In the next verse, he will answer their question about greatness. But he wants to show them that the same quality required for entrance is the same quality that should characterize the lives of those in the kingdom. So he talks about entrance first. Truly I say to you, now we've seen this over and over uh, in the book of Matthew, these words of Jesus, and it's like he's saying, everything I say is important, but this is really important. <laughs> Make sure you don't miss this. Unless you are converted. The idea of that word, converted, means to turn or to turn away or to turn completely around. Here, to have a complete turnabout in your thinking. And what is the substance of this radical change in thinking? You are to become like children, he says. Now, there are many attributes that we could use to describe a child. They're innocent. They're trusting. They're dependent. All of those things. But I think the critical thing to understand here is the place of children in that culture. In our culture, <laughs> we sometimes make children the center of our lives. 
you know, whatever, whatever the kids want. Well, that's pretty much what we do, and that's pretty much what they get. <clears throat> but in that culture, children, yes, they, they, they were a blessing, but they had no social standing at all. They were at the bottom rung of the ladder of social standing, social status. They had no status, no power, no authority. And how do we enter the kingdom? Well, we enter the kingdom by faith alone. I mean, that's, that's clear. It's always been by faith, by faith alone. And so that when Jesus says we must be converted and become like a child to enter the kingdom, he is saying that this then is really an elaboration on what faith is. It is coming to God with the realization that we have nothing in ourselves to offer or bring. We have no status, no power, no goodness to offer to God in order that he might accept us. We come trusting, empty-handed, trusting Jesus and his grace alone. That's how we enter the kingdom. And Jesus now says, that's how I want you to live in the kingdom. Verse 4, whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. We must be like that child to enter the kingdom. And we must be like that child to be great in the kingdom. Jesus said we must humble ourselves. We must we must make ourselves lowly, but add significantly as this child. We must humble ourselves. And he's got this child right in front of him. The disciples are gathered around him. He says, we must humble ourselves to be just like this child. Now, it's not just a humility that doesn't talk about oneself or one's accomplishments. It's much deeper than that. We've seen, in, in the previous verse, we, we've seen the status of a child. No power, no recognition, no authority over others, and not held in high esteem. And for a child, that, all that comes naturally because that's the way kids were looked upon in that culture. But Jesus says to us, that we must make that choice to become like a child. To lay aside our natural desire for and sometimes obsession with status, with power, and being honored, and to have authority and influence, and to have esteem in the eyes of those around us. It's sad. But this is what drives and governs so many in Christian service today. John Nolland, in his commentary in the book of Matthew, he, he says this, and I, I just thought it was good. The challenge is to replace the assertion of one's own importance 
with a deliberately chosen posture of subordination. And Jesus says, this, this one is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. This may not be seen as greatness in the eyes of the world. But this is greatness in the eyes of God. And Jesus says, this is the quality that's to characterize those in my new community. Serving God, serving others, without seeking that position of preeminence and, and fame, without having to be lauded or praised or honored, without having to be in control or having it done just your way. Become like a child. This is true greatness in the eyes of God. Not in the eyes of the world. In the eyes of God. Jesus then expands the idea of greatness to talk about the practice of this greatness. Verses 5 and 6. In verse 5 and Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Now, at this point, the focus shifts from how we view ourselves as those with no status or power to become like a child. It shifts now to how we view others and how we should treat one another. Here, in verse 5, Jesus expands the use of the word child. In verses 2 through 4, the child referred to the status and power of a young child. But now he expands child. Get this now. He expands child to refer to all those who are lowly in the eyes of the world, not just physical age children. But he says, the child refers to all of those who are lowly and looked upon as no status, no power, no, no, no recognition in the eyes of the world. Not just a child, but adults too. He's talking about those brothers or sisters in Christ who lack status and power and resources and influence. Now, why, why, why would he be concerned about this? I mean, could this possibly become a problem with the followers of Jesus? And that's why he's instructing and warning his disciples now. Well, Indeed, it became a problem in a very short time in the early church. Look at what James is addressing in the book of James. This is in the assembly. This is in the new community. James 2. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes, and you say, oh, sit over here in this good place. And you say to the poor man, well, you can just stand over there or sit down. You can sit by my footstool. That's fine. 
Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? So yes, Jesus knew the way that we are. We inherently are attracted to the attractive, to the beautiful people, to the powerful. And we tend to marginalize the weak and the needy and the less attractive. So Jesus says, if you truly receive such people, those who lack status and power and resources and influence, if you receive them, he says, in my name, in other words, we do that because this is what Jesus would do. If you welcome them, if you accept them, if you love them, if you embrace them, care for them, Jesus says, it's just like you're receiving me, him. He attaches the same importance to welcoming and accepting them as it would be to welcome and accept him. Another writer in his commentary on Matthew, Leon Morris, says, it is the habit of the world to serve the great and the popular. But for the follower of Jesus, the priority must be to receive and welcome the world's little people. Wow. Jesus, <clears throat> Jesus is giving the lowly people a significance that is well beyond and out of proportion to what the world assigns to them. This is the way of the new community. And this is what true greatness looks like in practice. But on the other hand, Jesus issues a severe warning. Verse 6, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, the little ones who believe in him are not necessarily children again. Remember, he expanded that idea. But those followers of Jesus who are weak, and powerless in the eyes of and according to the standards of the world. If anyone causes one of them to stumble, to stumble, to cause them to stumble, is to cause them to fall away, to hinder them from following Jesus. And in the context, what is it? that would cause them to fall away. It's being excluded from the life of the assembly, life of the assembly because of their status. You might say, well, I can't conceive of that ever happening, really. It was already happening in James 2, just 20, 30 years after Jesus. It was already happening. And Jesus says, if, 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 if that's what you do, it would be better for that person that a heavy millstone be hung around his neck and he be drowned in the depths of the sea. How do we understand that? Gee. Well, again, I believe it's Jesus is using hyperbole, but he's using it to show how awful and abhorrent 
such behavior is to God. And how totally opposite it is to the values of his new community. Now, it's not a warning of the laws of salvation. Not a warning of some kind of physical punishment. But it certainly conveys the seriousness of this and the displeasure of God and certain accountability at the judgment seat of Christ. Next, as we move on, continue in our passage, Jesus gives a warning that if we really want to follow Jesus and if the new community is really going to be a new community, a new kind of community, then then we must each take our sin seriously. That's what he says. Verse 7. Woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks, for it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to the man through whom stumbling blocks come. Stumbling blocks are those things that keep people from following Jesus as they should. Follow, keep, they keep people from following Jesus with full devotion and, and full commitment. And the world is just full of such things that cause people to, to wander away, to go astray from following Jesus. The world is full of stumbling blocks. <clears throat> it could be anything from personal and individual temptations and sins. For example... There's only, but for example, uh, in Galatians chapter 5, Paul talks about the deeds of the flesh. He talks about immorality. Well, that could certainly pull us away from serving Jesus, and impurity does, and sensuality, and idolatry would certainly pull us away, and sorcery, and enmity, and strife, and jealousy, and outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like that. All of, all of those things. Uh, and, and a multitude more could pull us away. And the world's full of those things. It pull us away from following Jesus. It could include those kind of individual sins, or it could include buying into and embracing the values of the world system. Values that are in direct conflict with, let's say, the teachings of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Using that, again, as just one example. that we might be filled with pride and arrogance instead of being poor in spirit, that we might mock sin instead of, he said, blessed are those who mourn for your sin, um, that we might be pursuing power and authority instead of gentleness because Jesus said, blessed are the gentle, and that we might be consumed with getting all we can Instead of showing mercy, because Jesus said, blessed are the merciful. And so these sinful behaviors and values, as well as an innumerable host of others, these, these are the stumbling blocks in the world. Things that hinder and keep people from following Jesus. They're in the world. They're all around us. We have to constantly fight against them. Then Jesus says this, woe to that man, that person, through whom the stumbling block comes. 
Man, this is a stern warning. It's a warning that we must not have anything in our lives that would cause another believer to stumble and therefore hinder them from following Jesus. There are plenty of stumbling blocks in the world. Jesus says, you don't want to be a part of any of them. And so he says then that we must deal radically with the sin in our lives. And the implication is because the sin in our life that we allow in our life might then cause someone else to stumble and turn away from following Jesus. So let's read what he says, verses 8 and 9. And if your hand and your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than having two hands or two feet to be cast, than to be cast into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out and throw it from you. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into fiery hell. Jesus had used this same language in in Matthew chapter 5 and uses it again here basically for the, the same purpose. It is again hyperbole, exaggerated language to get our attention, to make a point. He is not calling for self-mutilation, and all of God's people breathe the sigh of relief. But in order to stress the seriousness of what he's talking about, he uses this graphic and, let's say, exaggerated language. This is what he's saying. If our hands or feet or eyes are used in any way, that would cause us to go astray from following Jesus in full devotion. This is what he's saying. Don't rationalize that behavior. Don't accommodate that behavior. Don't minimize that behavior. Don't just try to scale back on that behavior. Deal with it decisively to completely do away with it. Cut it off. Deal with it radically. Do whatever it takes, whatever it takes to do away with such sin in our lives. Now, is Jesus teaching here that a failure to deal in this way with such sins will send us to hell if we don't? If, if, well, if, if cutting our hand or our foot or plucking out our eye is hyperbole, I think it's safe to say that being thrown into hell for not doing that is also hyperbole. But he says it this way to say that sin is what causes people to be cast into hell were it not for the grace of God. I know it's hard to understand, and that may not be an adequate explanation, but we don't get sidetracked on that. We must not miss, we must be careful not to miss what Jesus is saying. If the new community is going to be a new community, then as followers of Jesus, 
we must take responsibility for our lives and our sin. We must take it seriously and we must deal with it radically. We can't tolerate it, can't minimize it, can't rationalize it. Cut it off. Get rid of it. Well, we continue on. Jesus now says, in addition to dealing with the sin in our lives, we must guard against sinning against others. And here he talks about going after the wandering. Verses 10 through 14. Verse 10. See to it that you do not despise one of these little ones. Well, here he's talking about the little ones once again. The little ones refer to those who are seen as small and insignificant and basically unimportant by the world. And we must guard, we must be diligent to guard against despising these little ones. And that is to dismiss as not as important those people of lower status. The way of the world is to elevate and honor people with power and influence and dismiss the little ones, the powerless and unimportant. But Jesus says, my new community doesn't live by those rules. And then he gives a reason. For I say to you that their angels in heaven continually behold the face of my Father who is in heaven. He is saying here, that while they may seem unimportant and insignificant to the world, he is saying God knows all about them. Their angels, the angels assigned for their care, also report directly to God. So God knows what's going on. God knows what's going on with them. And if they matter to God, they should matter to us. Verse 11, for the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. Now, in some of your translations, you might not even have this verse, just like we had that one verse last week in our passage, because there's a dispute whether this verse was actually included in Matthew's original account, because it's not. this verse is not in some of the earliest Greek manuscripts. Um, but, once again, this verse here, for the Son of Man has come to save that which is lost, it's found in Luke 19. And so we don't have any doubt that these, again, are the words of Jesus. And so whether or not it's actually in Matthew's original manuscript, you know, we can't decide that, but they are the words of Jesus. And an old commentator from the 19th century said this. I like the way he said it. Since the whole object and errand of the Son of Man into the world is to save the lost, take heed lest, by causing offenses, you lose the saved. <laughs> Jesus came to, 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 to save the lost, and he says, and Jesus is warning us now, now that they're saved, be careful that you don't run away, or you don't force them away, you don't force them off, you don't lose the saved. And then he tells a story to show how important they are to God. Verse 12. What do you think? 
If any man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go and search for that one that is straying? And if it turns out that he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine which had not gone astray. We've heard this parable before, not in, not in the book of Matthew, but it's from Luke chapter 15. And, and most of us are familiar with the story of the, the lost sheep. It's, it, Luke 15 has the, the lost sheep and the lost coin and then the, the lost son, the story of the prodigal son. And in Luke, Jesus tells this parable to show the father's love for the lost. But here, he uses basically the same parable to show the father's love and concern for the little ones, those who are despised by the world. Same parable, but used to, to, to show a different purpose in each place. So if a shepherd of a hundred sheep loses one of those sheep, does he say, oh, it's no big deal, I still got 99, no loss. No, he leaves the 99, searches for the one sheep that is lost, searches until he finds it, and, and it brings him great joy to find that sheep and bring it back to the flock. Because all of his sheep are important to him. And then in verse 14, Jesus applies this story to the present context of the new community. Verse 14, thus it is not the will of your father who is in heaven that one of these little ones perish. Again, it's all about the little ones. Jesus is teaching us here in this passage about the little ones, the lowly ones of God's people. God cares for these. God does not want them to perish. I don't think the context means not in hell, but means in hell, but the destruction in their lives from falling away from following Jesus. And as God is the shepherd in the story, so we must be like him and actively not only seek the lost, as in Luke 15, but to care for one another, especially the lowly and the new community as a caring community, must not let any of the sheep wander away without seeking to restore them and bring them back to following Jesus once again. It's exactly what you were praying about, Dave. It's exactly what you were praying for. That God would lay it upon our heart to, uh, if there's someone that he might bring to mind that we need to reach out to. So, this passage is about life in the new community. And the overall message from this passage today is that Jesus is teaching that the new community is to be a caring community, especially caring for those who are considered the lowly, the powerless, the needy, and insignificant. That value system of the world should never be a part of the values of the new community. In a caring community, 
greatness is taking on the status of a child. Greatness in the world is things like status and power and recognition, authority, to exercise authority. Jesus says greatness in the new community is to humble ourselves like a child and abandon the desire for fame, recognition, honor, and authority, but rather serving God, serving others, without having to be lauded or praised or honored or in control or having it done just our way. It's the only way that's acceptable is our way. That's the greatness of the world. But that's not greatness in the new community. Jesus also says that in a caring community, greatness is practiced. As we welcome those who are lowly in the eyes of the world. And we must be careful to never cause them to stumble. To cause them to fall away from following Jesus by, by excluding them from the life of the church. Jesus says, in a caring community, we must take our sin seriously because our sin has an impact, not just on us, but on others around us. The world is full of those things that cause people to stumble, and fall away from following Jesus. We don't want anything in our life to cause someone to stumble. And that would hinder them in following Jesus. So Jesus says we must deal radically with our sin. Don't rationalize it. Don't accommodate it. Don't minimize it. Don't simply scale back on it. Deal with it decisively. In the caring community, we must go after those who have wandered. That's the point of the illustration of the sheep and the shepherd. He goes after the one sheep that wandered astray. Jesus said, as a caring community, we must, we must have that same concern for those who have wandered away from following Jesus. And especially for those who are the lowly among us. They may be considered disposable by the world, but not so in the new community. Whoever then humbles himself as this child, that one is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And he who receives one such child in my name receives me. Let's pray. Gracious Father, thank you again for your word that you've given to us. It is our prayer that you will use your word today, Lord, the work of the Holy Spirit to help us to understand it and help us to receive it and apply it to that you would use your word to shape our lives and shape this community, Lord, to be more of the community that you would desire. Lord, allow your word to speak to each of us here and show us where, show us our attitudes that are not consistent with yours, Lord. Show us the sin in our life that we must deal with and, 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 and with which you must deal decisively. 
Give us the grace, the strength, and the desire to obey that we might follow you more closely. Help us, Lord, here at the West Side Chapel that we might be a new community where you are honored and of which you take delight. In Jesus' name, amen.